Morning, Christ Bible Church. Welcome to all of you, a uh, special welcome to those of you joining us online. Hi, Mom. Hi, Chris. It's good to uh, be here together this morning. <clears throat> my name is Chuck Oldman. I'm a pastor, elder here at Christ Bible Church, and it's my privilege this morning to lead us in the study of God's Word. Uh, this week, we'll finish up chapter 5 in the book of Ephesians. We have a, lo- a lot of ground to cover this morning, so let's just dive right into the text. So this is the scripture journal. If you need one of these, I think there's still some in the back, but we'll be in Ephesians 5. Verses 22 through 33. As I read these, listen. Listen to how uh, most of what Paul says in this passage about husbands and wives is about Christ and the church. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his flesh, his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you Love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity this morning to gather together as your people in this place, Lord, as your church. And Father, I pray this morning, Lord, you know I feel inadequate to this task, but Lord, you are adequate, and I thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you would take your word and moved into our hearts in such ways that you shape us and mold us and make us like you. Father, we might become ever increasingly conformed to your image and that that might bring glory to your name. Father, please do that work in our midst this morning. We lift this time up and we uh, praise you and we thank you. And it's in your most holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. So does it seem odd to anybody other than me that here we are two weeks before Christmas and we're in the book of Ephesians? I mean, we're in Ephesians 5. Uh, previously at CBC, we've done an Advent. We've done the post-Thanksgiving ramp-up to the Christmas season, uh, but we just chose not to do that this year. So I thought it's my responsibility to actually help us move into more Christmassy sort of atmosphere. So I toyed with some ideas on how to do that. I thought, you know, we could do Joseph and Mary. Joseph is the loving husband. Mary is the wife who submits and, how, you know, and the baby Jesus and all that. And it just, it wasn't a good fit. So I still feel, though, I mean, not that they didn't do those things, but it just wasn't going to work out. So uh, I still feel compelled to provide some sort of tra- transition to the Christmas season. So here it is. Today, two weeks from today, it's Christmas. So 14 days from right now, it's Christmas. So if you haven't started getting ready, if you haven't uh, and where's my wife? You know, if we, if we haven't done some of these things, we're way behind, and you're way behind too, so get to work. But, but on a more serious note, uh, today our text is a crucial pivotal point in the Apostle Paul's instructions to the Ephesians. 
And seeing the pivot will help us better understand both uh, the direction Paul is going in and his instructions for us in this context. Paul gives us uh, directions on how to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. That's what this whole four through six is about. And today we're going to focus on that. So here's our plan this morning to uh, hopefully accomplish that task. First, we'll spend some time talking about context because context always matters and will help us better understand and shape uh, Paul's instructions to us today, as I mentioned. Next, we'll talk about God's commands to the wives and how to live in this way. And then his commands to the husbands and how this marriage thing should work. And then finally, we'll look at some so what's. How do we live this out in our lives? So context, wives, context, wives, husbands, and then so what. So let's get started. Uh, first, the, the context, the background. This is the 10,000-foot view. This is a, a reminder that the Bible is one contiguous story from Genesis to Revelation. And of the many meta-narratives of the many grand stories that are out there in our world today that try to explain what life is about and how life is to be lived, this is the one true story. This is a story that records the purposes of God in history and the purposes of God in our lives. So the basic arc of this story looks like creation, fall, rebellion, if you would, and then redemption and restoration. So that's the big story from Genesis to Revelation. And as a part of that plan to redeem mankind, as a part of that redemption piece, uh, God made a path, a road, a way back to him, a road that we're actually supposed to walk on, a road that leads to, to God and to his glory, uh, which is the ultimate purpose of our life, and to human flourishing. Now, the, path, the, the picture of a path that we have is, is both a recurring metaphor throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, and it's an important underlying idea, if you would, in Paul's uh, letter to the Ephesians. And I know some of you are probably out there wondering, does Chuck have a map for us today? Because that's one of those questions that always get asked. Uh, well, I'm going to go one better. Uh, we're going to drop down to ground level today, and we're going to go from Google Earth to Google Maps to the street level, and then we're going to turn on the satellite view, and we're actually going to look at what a road looks like. So uh, if you'd have the picture up there, please, thank you. This is the picture of a road. And I need to say some things to you about this road. First, this road was made by God, our God who created the entire universe, and you and me, that same God designed and structured life here to work in a certain way. And when we follow that way, we become like Him. We're transformed in His image, thereby bringing Him glory. That's what this road is about. And in doing that, we also experience human flourishing, uh, the abundant life that, that Christ promises us. So I just want to share one of the hundreds of passages in the Bible that talk in the Old Testament and the New Testament about this idea of a road. This is uh, Jeremiah 6, verse 16, actually a very sobering verse in respect to the road. Uh, Thus says the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. So the road, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, when he says to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, that's what he's talking about. Walk on this road, on this path back to me. The foundation of this road is God himself. Uh, think John 14, 6. 
Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So this road leads to the Father, and so Jesus is actually the road himself. So it's uh, these things coming together. Uh, and the curbs on this road are the moral commands. The edges of the road are God's moral will, the things he's revealed to us in his word about how life is to be lived. So using this road metaphor, this picture that, uh, of the path that leads us back to both God's glory and human flourishing, I want to use it as a template this morning, as an outline, if you would, for the book of Ephesians. This will remind us of where we've been in the book of Ephesians and give us some sense of where Paul is taking us in the text today. So here's the road. Let, let me paint the picture. Ephesians 1 through 3 is the indicative. God built the road. And this road, Ephesians 1, the foundation of, the, of this road is, is who God is. It's his divine decrees. It's our spiritual blessings in Christ, all those things that we studied in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 2 and 3, God takes, these, takes all these stones, these rocks, these big ones and little ones, and mixes them all together, the Jews and the Gentiles, and brings them together in this new way with a binding agent in this road being God himself. Uh, being we are in Christ, we are in him in this way, We're, we are the stones in this, in this road thing. Uh, Peter calls them living stones, but that's, that's the road being paved with the church, with, with us, with uh, God, and with uh, Christ and his spirit as the binding agent. And then also in Ephesians 2, God paints the picture for us of him taking us from death into life, from taking us, being off this road entirely, uh, Colossians talks about uh, moving from darkness into the kingdom of light. So he takes us out of this darkness, puts us on this road, on this path uh, to him. Uh, so not only that, but, you know, for by grace we've been saved through faith, and this is not our own doing, but it's the gift of God, not because it works lest any man should boast. And then he also says, and oh, by the way, I've created these good works beforehand already so that you may walk in them. So he creates these things, puts us on the road in the direction towards him, and becoming like him, and uh, bringing glory to him. So then, in chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians, Paul tells us how to, talk on the, how to walk on this road, how to, what worthy walking looks like. Uh, and this is the imperatives, the 4 through 6. And Paul first addresses what it looks like to walk on this road together with other saints, with other believers. Uh, and, this, and he also talks about how change occurs inside these believers as they walk on this road together. So we're transformed by the power of God and the image of God by putting off old sinful behaviors and by renewing our minds, then putting on new behaviors. And if, if uh, that's all out of Ephesians 4, we've looked at this. Put off falsehood, renew your minds, put on speaking the truth in love. Take off, uh, put off stealing, renew your minds, and then begin to do honest work, new behaviors. Take off bitterness, wrath, uh, malice, anger, slander, and put on kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiving one another. Then, in addition to this putting off and putting on, we're also to be filled with the Spirit. We looked at that last week, Ephesians 5.18. And out of that, the result of that, as Zach walked us through last week, is addressing uh, one another in psalms and hymns, singing and making melody in your hearts to God, giving thanks always, and submitting, which is the topic today. And I'm sure all of you this week, probably as an application from last week's sermon, sang hymns to one another in psalms and hymns. I'm sure that happened in your homes and in your offices this week. Uh, but all of these things are a result of being filled with the Spirit. They're actions to be lived out, 
They are ways that we walk on the road with the community of believers. And the picture I want you to have in your mind is this community of believers is us. It's the church. It is your community group. It is your family. It is your, the, your husband and wife together, all on this road, walking towards God on this path that he has defined. And we are living life together with all these uh, imperatives that he's, that he's already given us in Ephesians 4 and 5 on how this, what this looks like as we live together. So we love we forgive, we encourage, we admonish, we serve one another, we put others' interests ahead of our own. In all those ways, we live life together, rubbing stones against each other in the, in the concrete of, of Jesus, and we become more like Him, and we walk this path together. Well, today, this brings us to where we are in, the, in Ephesians, and this brings us to the passage where Paul makes a, a clear pivot. Now he begins, he's no longer talking about the aggregate saints walking together, he he narrows it down about how we, uh, to, to this relational focus of ordered relationships. And Zach uh, began to walk us through that last week, or what are commonly called the household codes, if you would, in the Roman times. So the, uh, the, but before we talk about these ordered relationships, uh, and husband and wife in particular, I just want to reiterate one point here. As I mentioned earlier, this is God's road. Um, it, it's the principle, it's, it's, it's everything that God said, and this is how we should live. He is the creator. He made it. It's not just a list of good ideas and principles and things that you maybe should try in your marriage or your home to see if they work out okay. This is God's blueprint for how life works. And today in particular, we're going to talk about God's blueprint for how marriage is to work. So this is God's idea. To not live life, married life in this way together is to actually violate God's design for marriage. As an aside, it's also why the current legislation that will likely be signed into law this week, uh, so grossly misnamed the Respect for Marriage Act, is completely wrong and a violation of God's created order. Marriage is upstream from government. It's upstream from politics. It's before all those things. This thing is what God created. God made marriage, not man. God made it for his glory and for our good. This is how life is supposed to work. And man cannot remake marriage in his image, no matter what laws he passes. Also, what this text says about husbands and wives today is very uh, countercultural. It runs against the grain. In the hashtag MeToo world that we live in, especially the one underpinned uh, so much by the uh, critical theory thinking that we talked about back in September, uh, the idea of submission in this context that we're going to talk about with wives and husbands is anathema. It is viewed as archaic. It is viewed as demeaning. It's viewed as harmful, uh, wrong to, to live life in this way. But that's just simply not true. As we attempted to communicate to you because we wanted to give you a way to think about these things in our society today when we did the critical theory piece, uh, it's just not true. At Christ Bible Church, we hold to a complementarian view uh, we believe that God created both men and women in his image, Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, equal in personhood, equal in being, but different in roles, uh, not superior, inferior, not better or worse, not important, more important, less important, just different, different roles. And in that, um, and all of us are equal before God, Colossians 3.11 makes that clear. So that's kind of the underneath piece of this. Now let's, uh, let's talk about the wives. Again, here, uh, 
Paul is narrowing the focus of worthy walking from the broad community to the ordered relationships. There's five of these ordered relationships in the New Testament. Uh, husband and wife, uh, children and the parents, uh, slaves and masters or employees and em- employers, and then government and uh, citizens, and then uh, finally elders in the flock. So uh, three of those are addressed in the book of Ephesians, and we'll just do the first one of those today, which is the husband and wife. And I know that some of you are here today and you're not married. Uh, if you are here and not yet married, then this text tells you what to look for in a man or a woman when and if God provides you the opportunity to transition to, to this phase of life. So pay attention. Uh, if you're here and you have lost your spouse due to death or divorce, then I am truly sorry uh, for your loss. You have or are going through one of the most difficult life experiences that there is, to lose someone from the most intimate relationship that God has designed. But be encouraged that in the midst of your pain, uh, God can be and will be and is your husband or your wife, the one who abundantly gives of himself that we might truly experience life in him. So back to the road analogy. This, again, is God's road And you can think of the ordered relationships we're going to talk about today as a lane on this road. So um, we're going to talk about what it looks like to to follow God's directions on how to stay in that lane. So uh, here we go. I don't think we have any lane-minding software in our driving thing here. But it kind of does. It kind of beeps when you get out of your lane. But that's the idea. The the rhythm that we'll do today is uh, what, why, and how. And we'll do it both for the wife and the husband. So... Uh, what is she to do, why should she do it, and, and how does she do that, and then look at some considerations, and then we'll uh, flip scripts and look at the husbands. So first of all, uh, wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. So what does that word submit mean? Well, before I go there, I just want to talk very, very briefly about what it doesn't mean, uh, what it does not mean. Since the last half of the 20th century, there have been many attempts to uh, to soften that word, and, to, and they, these attempts continued to be made to try to shift the, the, the meaning of that word from what it means to something that's more culturally palatable. And I would just offer that uh, you can look at the arguments I have, and I find them wanting. I don't think they pass academic muster. So I'm happy to discuss that in great detail with anyone who would choose to do that. Just give me a shout-out, and we'll, we'll sit down and have the talk. But what I want to talk about today is what I think the Bible, what, what that word actually means for us today. And what it does mean is it, it, can, it means to cause to be in a submissive relationship, to subject, to subordinate. And in the form that this verb is found in the Greek, it actually has the idea of submit yourself. So it's a, a willing submission. It's found four times in the New Testament with respect to husband and wife. Uh, Colossians 3.18, which we'll look at in a second here or at least allude to, it's translated submit. Uh, Titus 2.5, which is uh, translated submissive. And then 1 Peter 3.1, uh, which we will look at, which it's translated to be subject to. Uh, John MacArthur says the word means to relinquish your rights, which I think truly captures the essence of, of what this word means. It also denotes functional subordination, so there's actually authority being communicated here, but without inferiority. So it, again, back to my opening statement on men and women, but, uh, and this is reinforced by 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28, where Christ is said to be subject to God. Again, clearly, Christ and God, same in essence, same in being, with no inferiority implied in that passage or 
in the passage that we're looking at today. So uh, that's the what. How about the why? Why should wives do this? Wives submit as to the Lord, uh, verse 22. Well, as to the Lord uh, does not mean submit him as if he were the Lord, because he's not. And those of you who are married would probably readily acknowledge that. It also does not mean to submit to him as the Lord only when he loves you like the Lord loves you, because I guarantee you that he won't always do that. Uh, but, as a, but it does mean that as a Christian duty, because you're a follower of Jesus, submit to him. So it's, it's, it's because you are a follower of Jesus, then you should follow your husband in this way as well. So that's one reason. The second reason is, is because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. That head is another word that's been uh, debated, and we can have that conversation as well. But here I think it clearly, especially in parallel with Christ and the church, it clearly is articulating an authority structure. And interestingly, as you heard when I read the, the passage this morning, Paul uses Christ and the church as kind of this relational mirror for both the husbands and the wives to say, okay, this is what your relationship should look like. Look at Christ and the church, and a good chance to uh, kind of see how that's going. Um, so that's why wives should submit. So how do wives submit? Uh, again, we often, we tend to look at behaviors, at outcomes, that okay, if she's submitting, she should act like this. When really this passage is really talking about uh, more orientation and more attitude. So it's really about the heart. Um, so how should wives do that? Well, as the church submits to Christ. So that is the model and the measure of what this should look like. And I would offer at least three things out of this text that this is how wives should submit. One is voluntarily. It's not coerced. That's already, that comes out of the form of the verb that's used. Uh, she does this willingly. Um, she does this lovingly, uh, trusting that Christ has, as Christ has the church's best interest in heart as shown by the fact that, as the text says, uh, is himself her savior. So Christ is the savior of the church and therefore has the church's best interest in heart. The husband is the head of the wife and has her best interest at heart. And because of that, uh, she should submit to him as well. And then finally, in verse 33, uh, she should submit respectfully. And that word, if you, were, if you listened to Zach last week, it's the same word that uh, out of reverence for the Lord that in verse 21 is uh, that kind of started this whole submission piece. And it, it doesn't mean fear. It means awe. It means reverence. It means uh, respect. It has that, that sense to the meaning. So that's how the wife should submit. Now, some problems to think about or consider as you consider what that might look like. Uh, what if the husband is not a leader? What if uh, he doesn't want to lead? And I would offer that this is God's template for how marriage is supposed to work. So he needs to lead. So if your husband is that way, you should give him room to lead. Sometimes that's an issue. And you should actually pray for him and help him and encourage him as best you can to take those steps of leadership and to begin to behave in that way. Um, what if he doesn't love me as Christ loved the church? What if I can't submit to him because he doesn't love me properly? Uh, well, yeah, that, that really doesn't work because there's no little caveat in there, no little footnote to the text that says in the English or the Greek that says, you know, if he doesn't love you like this, then you don't have to submit. It, it is what... It is the structure God has designed. It's how uh, the wife is to live. And don't worry, the husband get, doesn't get off the hook either. Um, so, but what if 
he's not a Christian. Do I, am I to submit then? And the short answer is yes, and Peter gives some of the underlying thinking there. This is 1 Peter 3, 1 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So Peter paints a very similar picture that the wife, if she, if she submits to and loves her husband in this way, that then he, she can actually win him over because of her conduct. So, uh, so yes, she should still follow him. <clears throat> Along with these uh, problems or different situations, there's also, also some words of caution. Uh, first, as previously mentioned, this uh, submission that we're talking about is, giving will, is given by the wife, excuse me, willingly. It's not, uh, it's not coerced. Any attempt by the husband to, to force his wife to submit to him, is, uh, it violates God's command of how he is to love her as Christ loved the church. Any form of abuse is never warranted, and it's sin. So that is an inappropriate view and application of this verse. Uh, secondly, another word of caution, husbands, anytime you must play the, the Bible says you have to submit card, you've already lost the battle. So uh, you need to look at how you're loving your wife well. And this would include some of those more subtle approaches you might have, like, honey, why don't we memorize this verse together? Or uh, why don't we sit down and talk about these verses out of, you know, just these three verses out of Ephesians 5? Uh, yeah, that, that doesn't work either. Uh, so, so men don't do that. And uh, finally, verse 24 talks about submitting in everything, and there are actually limits to this submission. The woman's responsibility is first and foremost to obey God. So if the man ever tries to encourage the wife to do something that God has clearly commanded her not to do, do not submit to your husband. Submit to the Lord and uh, bring glory to his name in that way. So that's the wives. Now let's talk about the husbands. Um, so if it might be time for the loving nudge for uh, that to occur. Uh, this starts with verse 25. Uh, but before we look at the text, think through this with me. If you're reading this text for the first time and you've just read God's command to the wife, what would you expect God's command to the husband to be? Uh, what would come next? So if the wife is to follow, then the husband is to lead. Very good, very good. A few of you said it, okay. But is that what the text says? That's not where the text goes at all. It says the husband is not commanded to lead his wife, but he's commanded to love her. What's up with that? How does that, you know, this is unexpected in a sense and completely countercultural. It's countercultural for us, uh, but it's really countercultural for Paul in his day. So what does this, this countercultural command to love your wife as Christ loved the church, what does that actually mean? So we'll do the same thing, what, why, how, and then talk about some considerations. So generally, the word uh, translated love here means love, cherish, have affection for, take pleasure in, prove one's love, uh, to show love. And it is, uh, the verb itself is in the imperative. It's a command. So it's clearly a command. It's not just a feeling, but it is, it is a choice. It's an act of the will, if you would. It's an action. And the best articulation of what this kind of love that men are supposed to love their wives with looks like is 1 Corinthians 13. It's the one that's always read at weddings. And, uh, so go back and, and read it, men, and put the glasses on that say 
This is how I'm supposed to love my wife. You know, it's the, it's the, you know what I'm talking about. Love is patient, love is kind, love isn't rude, it doesn't envy or boast, it's not arrogant. And it goes a lot on, and, and you can't read that, at least I can't, without going, oh yeah, no, yeah, ooh, yeah. So uh, it's a good way to think about what this love practically looks like in your marriage. So that's the what. Uh, why should husbands love their wives in this way? Well, because, uh, as already pointed out, in verse 23, the man is the head, and, the, and as Christ is the head of the church, the man is the head of the wife. So there's a, there's, he is over her in that way, but then if you look at 1 Corinthians 11.3, it talks about how Christ is over the man. So the, the, the structure is that she's re, he, the man is responsible for God for what goes on in his marriage. And because he is responsible to Christ, he needs to, to love her in this way. So that's one reason why you should love. A second is, and Paul talks about this in verses 20 through 32, because the two have become one. There's this thing that happens, and he goes back to Genesis 2, uh, 24 and 25, to kind of lay this this argument out. And he says, the two have become one. We're not sure how that works. It's kind of a mystery. But uh, because they are now one, and, and then Paul says, the husband should care for his own body, and because he should care for his own body, and now... His body is one with his wife's body. He's, he should care for her as well. And so what this looks like is the nourishing and cherishing uh, thoughts that are, that are contained in this passage. Because they're one body, you should, you should nourish yourself and you should take care of yourself. And the, the, other, um, uh, the, the, the third reason, and it's sort of connected to this one in a way as well, is because since before the fall, God intended this institution of marriage to prefigure the church in Christ. And to me, this is, this is pretty amazing. So God, God's intent, when he created, in the created order of things, and he created Adam and Eve, and it's before the fall, and he made them one together in that way, he was already looking forward to his redemptive work in, at the cross that resulted in Christ and the church being joined in this way as well. So he's prefiguring what's going to happen uh, millennia later in, in his in his grand plan of things, which is to me just an amazing thought. Again, he, Paul grounds this creation thought in Genesis 24 and 25 and then points that to the mystery. And this mystery is the fulfillment of God's hidden plan in Christ. So he connects all these things in this way, grounds it in the Old Testament, and it's just a sight to behold. Uh, Wayne Grudem says this about that. It, it is the reflection of and patterned after Christ's relation to the church. And, and I would argue that that is... Yet again, it's the, actually the same reason, but looked at a little differently, why our culture's attempt to redefine marriage is just wrong at its base. Because this is not just about a man and a woman deciding that we're going to do this thing called marriage. It's God saying, you're together in this way, and it, it talks theologically about what I'm going to do with my people in the plan of redemption. So it's just deeply wrong. So how? That's the why. How do husbands love in this way? The, uh, the mirror is as Christ loved the church. That's how we're supposed to love our wives. And again, I'd offer three things out of the text that say what that should look like. One, it should be willing. Uh, verse 25 talks about how Christ gave himself up for her, for the church. And, that same, and if you think about that, I mean, that's an overwhelming thought in and of itself because he became man, came, stepped down from the throne, became one of us, and then lived and, was, and suffered and died as our Savior. And, and that picture is, and he did all that of his own volition. He did all that willingly. So 
as Christ willingly did that for the church, men, husbands should willingly do that for their wives. Secondly, it clearly involves leading her. Uh, Although not directly addressed in the text, this is what heads do. They lead. So, uh, but the accent in this passage, as we've already talked about, is not on authority. It's on love. So, and if you look in the New Testament, that's how Christ said we should lead, actually, is to love in this way, to lead by uh, serving. So are you willing to die for yourself, uh, die to yourself for your wife? Um, do you routinely put her interests and welfare ahead of your own? Uh, so that would be a second reason why men should do this. And thirdly, it also uh, it involves helping her grow and become more like Christ. And the words that Paul uses here paints the picture of a Jewish wedding. You know, the, the washing, the cleansing, holy without blemish, uh, uh, sanctifying, it's the setting apart. And it, the, the picture is kind of, those of you who are married, it's, if you remember back uh, long enough, you, you remember your wife at the head of the aisle before she came down to begin the process by which she became your wife. I mean, it was a sight to behold. It's a, it's a thing of beauty. And that picture that Paul is painting here is how husbands should help their wives to grow and uh, mature and become more like Christ. Because that the image of Christ is that image of beauty, again, that is at the end of this road that we're all on together. So that's the, the how husbands should do this. But in here, there's some extra points to consider as well. Uh, what if she refuses to submit to me? Then do I have to love her in this way? Yeah, you probably know the answer to that. We'll come back to that in a second. W- what if she's not lovable? What if she behaves in, uh, uh, in ways that make it difficult for me to love her? What if she doesn't appreciate my efforts? What if she's not thankful? What if she doesn't deal with the kids the way I think they should be dealt with? Uh, actually, this kind of goes with her refusal to submit um, and again, there's no little asterisk or footnote in, in this text that says you only have to do that if she behaves in this way. Men have to love their wives, irregardless of their reciprocation or anything else. So, sorry. What if she's not a Christian? I would offer that's all the more reason to love her as Christ loved the church. You know, just as Peter talked about wives in uh, who have unbelieving husbands, women who ha- or husbands who have unbelieving wives, if you pour out the love of Christ on her and love her in that way, uh, possibly God will graciously bring her into the kingdom. So love her. So how do we do this? What do we actually do with this? And again, I would offer, uh, before we talk about that, just a general reminder. First of all, this whole thing, this submitting and loving thing, is God's design for marriage. So if either the husband or the wife choose not to live in this way, uh, they are not just wronging their spouses, they are disobeying the creator God of the universe. It is his plan. And second to that and related is what this actually looks like in a marriage can vary greatly from couple to couple. Everybody brings baggage. Everybody brings different perspectives and gifts and personalities to the marriage uh, feast and and how that gets lived out within a marriage is uh, it reflects that great variety. So being the head doesn't mean that you have to run all the family finances or that you have to make every single decision there is to be made about every aspect of how this house is put together and painted and run. Uh, it does not mean that at all. But it does mean that husbands, as they have opportunity and gifting lends itself to that, even if uh, as they delegate that, those responsibilities, they are still ultimately responsible for God to, uh, for his family in that way. So as you think through that, uh, here's 
how one Christian organization defined marriage about, you know, their marriage statement and how these two things should come together. So in, in a marriage lived according to these truths, this submit and love truths, the love between husband and wife will show itself in listening to each other's viewpoints, in valuing each other's gifts, wisdom, and desires, and in honoring one another in public and private, and always seeking to, to bring benefit, not harm, to one another. So in the midst of this figuring out what this submitting and loving looks like in the context that you're in, in your marriage, think about that way. You know, it is a very different uh, approach than, you know, here's, here's the family plan for the next 10 years, sign here. You know, th- this is, uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's coming together in ways. And so you really need to figure out what this looks like uh, for you as a couple but you need to stay between the curbs. You need to stay on the road. You need to stay in your lane. You need to still submit. You need to still love. And within that context, figure out what that looks like for you. So finally, how do we move our marriages in this direction? Uh, I think first and foremost, you have to deal with the heart. Um, If you don't change at the heart level, then you have not actually changed. So how do you change the heart? Well, again, this is a joint project. This is a, a project between God and between us. You know, Philippians 2.12, I think, bring, brings these things together beautifully. It says, work out your salvation for fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So work out your salvation, do your part, but it's God who is simultaneously at work within you to change you, to make you a different person on the inside. So, and if you remember what all this comes out of, this is all out of 5.18. There's those five things that come out of being filled with the Spirit, resulting in singing and dancing and praying and and being thankful and submitting. And this is how we are to submit in this way. So uh, a good way to, so then then the logical question is, okay, so what's it mean to be filled with the Spirit? I think a good way to think through that is by looking at the parallel passage in Colossians, which is really a very close, close parallel. Uh, It was written about the same time by Paul while he was in prison. It's written to uh, places that are just Ephesus and Colossae are like 120 miles apart. I should have a map, but I'm sorry. Uh, so, but they are very close together geographically, and uh, they're dealing with many of the same problems, uh, both uh, physically and culturally. And, and listen to the similarities in what Paul says the Colossians should be doing, starting in, in chapter 3, verse 16. So this is the back half of 16, and listen for the echoes of what you should have heard Already, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Does that sound like anything you've heard? Maybe something out of Ephesians uh, 5. And then, right after that, from verse 18 through the end of the chapter, he talks about ordered relationships, the same ones that Paul talks about in Ephesians. Uh, And actually, he covers these. Uh, these verses, 22 through 33, he does in four verses. So it's like the Reader's Digest version, really shrunk down. But um, it's the same ordered relationships. So uh, very close parallel. So then what is at the front end of this? What does Paul say should result in all these things? And if you look at the first words of Colossians 3, he says, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. Teaching in mind, and then all that other stuff comes out of that. So let the word of Christ dwell richly within you results in these things. Being filled with the Spirit results in these same things. The point being that I think this is two sides of the same coin, if I could use that picture. Uh, being filled with the Spirit and letting the word of Christ dwell richly within you are, 
are result in these same outcomes. So because that's true, therefore, one of the key ways I would offer, if not the key way, that we are to be filled with the Spirit is to immerse ourselves in the Word of God. And so what's that mean? That means listen to the Word of God. Listen to the Word of God being preached. It means read the Word of God. It means study the Word of God. It means memorize the Word of God. It means meditate on the Word of God. Let the Word of God dwell richly within you. And when you do that, the result of that will be singing psalms and hymns, which uh, that's a great thing. But eventually, it's also submitting and loving in these ordered relationships in the way God has created us to be on this path. God's Word can change you, change me, change us on the inside. It really, He can change us. Hebrews 4.12, I think, uh, says this very clearly. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of both joints and, and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So there's a two-edged sword, there's a Word of God that can be inside of us and can be shaping our hearts, carving them, and making them love the things that God loves and making us be on that road, pointed in the direction that is walking towards Him to the glory of God and to our flourishing. I mean, that's how God has designed this to work. So if we're planted deeply in His Word and His Spirit, the fruit of His Spirit will be increasingly evident in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things are what make us look more like Jesus when those things are more evident in our lives. And that's the result of dwelling, letting the Word of Christ dwell richly within us. So begin with the heart, but don't stop there. Uh, one of the primary weapons that prevents husband and wives from, from living uh, out this God-ordained relational roles is the tongue. And as uh, Isabel and I have had opportunity over the years to come alongside couples who are experiencing uh, bumps in these relational roads, and one of the primary contributors to this, to, to this conflict is the tongue. Uh, the words we use and the tone of our speech matter. They matter deeply. Over time, the way we talk to each other, the way we relate to each other, can become uh, deeply entrenched habits. She says something I don't like, I respond in kind. Uh, she takes another jab at me, I verbally counterpunch, and the fight is on. And as many of you are likely aware, it's the same fight often over and over and over and over again. Uh, the re relational ruts become very deep. So uh, th the good news is that it does not have to be this way. Uh, people can change. God can fill these ruts by His grace. He can start us anew. And how does that process begin? Again, we've seen this already in Ephesians 4. Uh, the process begins with repentance, confession, forgiveness, and reconciliation. You have to identify the root cause of this conflict. Uh, sometimes that's hard to do. Uh, sometimes it's easier to do later. And then, once you've done that, you have to forgive each other. You have to love each other in that way. You have to confess your sin. You have to ask for forgiveness. Those, all those things that, that, God, uh, that, that Jesus said that you do these things corporately together, you've got to do them in your marriage as well. So, and the Apostle Paul said it very succinctly at the end of Ephesians 4. He said, forgive one another as, Christ in, in, uh, as God in Christ has forgave you. So, it starts there. And then you renew your speech. We're back to the, the uh, put off, renew, put on idea. And this is Ephesians 4.29, which we've also talked about previously. Take off the corrupting speech, renew your mind, put on only words that, words that build up, words that fit the occasion, and words that give grace to those who hear. 
that should be the measure of whether or not I should say what I'm about to say. So before you say it, this doesn't work so well after you've said it, but before you say it, before the words come out of your mouth, think, is this going to build her up or him up? Is this gonna, is, are these words appropriate to the occasion? Is, this, is it fit? Is this the right time to say it? And then does it give grace to those here? Is this actually going to be helpful or is this going to be harmful? And if it doesn't work, if, that, if it doesn't fit, if you can't check those boxes, then don't say it. Zip it that, uh, you know, and just stop. You know, catch. And then wait until you can have the conversation, find out what the root cause is, and, and start the process. But, uh, so give God the space to work in your heart, but also, for starters, uh, work on your tongue, on the words that you use and when you communicate with your spouse. And just in closing, mar- marriage is hard. Marriage is hard. It, it takes work. Uh, it takes effort on our part, and it takes the grace of God to make progress, to model relationally to our family and to the world this relationship that Christ has with his church. So may we do that increasingly in our lives and in our marriages for his glory and for our good. So stay on the road. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your guidance. Thank you for clearly telling us in your word uh, what this road looks like. And Lord, please forgive us. Lord, we all fail. We all say things we shouldn't say. We all uh, wander off this path. But Lord, uh, forgive us for our sin. Forgive us for our, our idolatry. But Lord, thank you that you have paid the price for that. Thank you that you actually empower us to walk on this road, to live different lives. So Lord, shape us, uh, mold us, Lord, make us like you. Give us hearts that love what you love. And Lord, and please do that for your glory, Lord, and for our good. For it's in your most holy and precious name we pray. Amen.